This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down, uh, bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent them off from, the, uh, he, then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in, in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we find this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. 
All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Thanks, Pete. Stay there in uh, Genesis 37, friends. Hopefully, uh, everyone got a booklet. If you haven't got one and you want to throw your hand up, Joss will chuck one at you. Um, big thanks to Joss, by the way, who put these booklets together. Not only did she kind of put it all together with space to write notes and things to pray about and the like, she's also written Bible studies to reflect and discuss, so for growth groups, for households, for individuals. She's written Bible studies for every week of the series, uh, which is just fab- fabulous, and she's done little summary points so you can sort of follow where we're up to for the next six weeks. And on the back is a whole bunch of stuff that's coming up for your diary. So, uh, great resource. Big thanks to Joss. And it looks pretty good too, thanks to Michaela Larkin, uh, who designed this great series graphic for us. Um, All right, let's pray. Our Father, thanks so much for your word, the Bible, and we pray that you would do now for us what you promised to do, that you would teach us, that you would rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray that you would do this by your spirit tonight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I read this quote some months ago, and when I did, I thought, that is our Genesis series. This was the quote from John Piper. He said, in the Scriptures, we have the revelation of a great God, the exaltation of His invincible grace and the liberation of His undeserving people. God has revealed his purposeful sovereignty over good and evil in order to humble human pride, intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness and put ballast in the battered boat of human faith, steel in the spine of human courage, gladness in the groans of affliction and love in the heart that sees no way forward. That is what we want to ask God to do over the next 14 weeks in the book of Genesis, with a little pause over the Easter weekend. We want love in our hearts when we can see no way forward. We want gladness even in the midst of our groans of affliction. We want steel in our spines to give us courage We want ballast human hopelessness to be shattered by the amazing hope that we have in Jesus. Our worship of God to be intensified and our human pride humbled. And that comes as we see, as we know, as we trust the purposeful sovereignty of God. God's providence, His control over His promises, His plan and His people. And as that is revealed to us in His Word, the Bible, we're praying that God would do those things 
Joseph and his broader family, the beginning of the nation of Israel, we see this purposeful sovereignty, God's providence, his control over his plan, his promises and his people. Okay? And spoiler alert, you've got to keep coming, but this is the end of the story. Our protagonist, Joseph, tells us at the very end that that's what his life has been about. So in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph says that's what his life has been about. We're going back and get to see that unfold as we follow the story along. God's purposeful sovereignty, that he intends to even take what is evil and harmful in this world and turn it for the good of those who love him, for his plans and his purposes, his promises and his people. That is what we're going to see over the next 14 weeks. And we're going to hear more than a couple of times uh, what Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, said about Joseph some 1900 years after Joseph. As Stephen went to his death with people throwing rocks at his head until he died, Stephen was saying about Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. Even in the midst of evil and suffering, the Lord was with Joseph. And I wonder if that truth gave ballast in the faith and steel in the spine of Stephen himself as he faced the rejection and murderous intent of those around him. That the Lord is with him even as he was with Joseph, working out his sovereign even in the midst of rejection and murderous intent. As Bible readers, it shouldn't take much for us to see that even when God isn't mentioned or even when he's not actually speaking, he is always close in the Bible's story. He is always working. His purposes are always being carried out. And Genesis 37 to 50 is a great picture of that. In these 14 chapters, there aren't a whole stack of miracles. There aren't a whole stack of moments where God thunders from the clouds giving people commands. There aren't all these kind of moments where God suspends the laws of nature that he created in order to intervene into his world. No, God's sovereign purposes, his providence, his plan is carried out through ordinary mess, through lots of normal. It's carried out through lots of suffering and sin. It's carried out through lots of evil hearts and depraved minds. God achieves his purposes. God accomplishes his plan to save many people through Jesus. And so over these months, I hope we get great comfort and real hope as we read this story. That as we see God working even through mess and sin, 
God working through suffering and rejection, through all the complicated entanglements of life and bodies and emotions and regrets, that we can see God is sovereignly at work, that God is close, that God is with His people for His purposes. And that that might give us gladness in our groans, love in our hearts, steel in our spine and ballast in our faith. Even through evil structures, even through naive mistakes, God's purposeful sovereignty is being applied to His people's lives to achieve His plan and to promote His purposes. And so in the midst of all of that, we're called to depend on Him, the God who is there, the God who cares, the God who is close. And so as we learn over these months in church together each Sunday and in our growth groups and in our homes, I hope under God we will know Him better, that we will understand something more of His grand story, that our understanding of His character and His ways might be enhanced. And just as a little kind of aside for a second, what that means, I think, and feel free to come at me afterwards, What I think that means is that when it comes to where this narrative story of Joseph lands in our lives and bites in our day-to-day existence, we're going to be thinking over these next few months about the big picture. It's lifting our eyes and our hearts and our prayers. It's not going to be kind of touching as much on the nitty-gritty of our lives, although the details of Joseph's life and and Jacob's wider family will no doubt touch on our circumstances as well. But we're going to be thinking about knowing God as one of the chief applications of this time in these chapters. And that changes everything, by the way, of nitty and every grain of gritty. All right, let's get into chapter 37. In verse 2 of chapter 37, if you look there, you can see that it says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. This is the account of, we've read that nine other times in the book of Genesis, this is the tenth and final time. This is the account of, the generations of. Uh, That is what has broken up this book of Genesis, those ten, this is the account of, these are the generations of. And so this, for us as a church, is our fourth series in this book since 2019. And so, if you're playing along at home, it's sermon number 33 in the book of Genesis. And if you're feeling like, oh, I've missed 31 to 32, don't sweat it. I think you'll still be able to follow along, but if you want to go back on YouTube or our podcast, the grand story of God's salvation in Jesus beginning to unfold. And God in this book lays for us the foundations and the background to how God is going to undo the impact of sin and death in the world, how he's going to reverse the curse and how he's going to bring sinful and human humanity, fallen humanity, how will God bring sinful and fallen humanity back into a restored friendship and intimacy with their creator? They're some of the big questions 
as well as who is the seed, who's the person who's going to crush the serpent's head, as promised in chapter 3. Who will carry on the promises to Abraham from chapter 15, the promises of place and people and worldwide blessing? Where will the great saviour of the world come from? And one of the challenges for us, I think, in this last section is that it can sometimes feel hard to locate those big promises and those key moments in the Joseph story. It feels different to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Joseph's story seems a little bit different. Those big themes and issues seem to kind of fall into the background a little bit. So why is that? We know it's going to be helpful because this little story in 37 to 50 shows us how God's people Israel end up in slavery in Egypt. That's a good thing to know. These chapters show us somewhat of how the family line of promise continues despite great threat and danger. That's good to know. But is that it? It's a big chunk of this book to be given over to some background information. Well, I think there's actually something more to that and actually... One writer has said it like this, up until now we've followed the seed narrowing from father to son several times over Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but with Joseph, however, the story widens to encompass the whole of Jacob or Israel's family, the 12 sons and the beginning of the nation. And so here's a little key for us, I think. Joseph's story doesn't tell us exactly where to look for the Messiah, but the kind of Messiah we're to look for. Do you get that? I'll say it again. Joseph's story doesn't tell us so much where to look for the Messiah, as in which family line, we know that already. Joseph's story is going to tell us the kind of Messiah to look for. And so, as we see in Joseph... And a person who images for us is a picture of the Saviour King that Jesus would be. We see in Joseph, like we do in Jesus, someone who has deep wisdom, who undergoes unjust suffering, who is rejected by his own family, who has global renown, whose pursuit of godliness, whose forgiving spirit is, will remind us time and time again how the character of the fabric of the universe and how God's ways and his kingdom and his beloved son have been on display since the very beginning and is what life in this world is all about. And so, through this Joseph story, our understanding of Jesus, the Saviour King, will be broadened and deepened as well. And so, in these last little bit that we've got together tonight, let's look at some details in chapter 37. And the three things to see in 37 is the beloved son, the jealous brothers and their harmful intent. In the beloved son, we see in verses 3 and 4, It's explicitly told that Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons. 
Uh, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. Why? Because Joseph was the son of his old age. The extra gift, as it were. And if you go back to where the line of the 12 sons of the tribes of Israel are outlined in Genesis, you see that also Joseph was the first son of um, Jacob's wife, Rachel. And if you go back to the dysfunctional family tree, you remember that Rachel was the one that Jacob really loved. And so it's a, it's a matter of heartache that she couldn't bear him any sons until Joseph came along. And so he, has the special, he is the special object of his father's affection and it seems that that kind of favouritism and that special treatment was very much on display. It wasn't a guessing game for anyone involved. And so, if you've been kind of hanging out to get back to Genesis and you're hanging around for the last few years, or if you know the book of Genesis, you might go, here we go again. Jealousy, family rivalry, bitterness, never far away in this family story. That family dynamic that we've come to know and expect is very much front and centre. And verses 4 and 5, as well as verse 8, tell us that Jacob's uh, other sons, Joseph's brothers, actually turn their jealousy into hatred towards their brother Joseph. Jealous of his great jacket, jealous of the unequal workload, jealous of their father's affection. The jacket is kind of um, the external evidence of Israel's favouritism. We know it as a technicolour dream coat, but in reality it was probably not so much the technicolour or hypercolour if you're a child of the 80s. Uh, It was just a long-sleeved, ornate robe. And if you think about these guys out in the fields as shepherds, out in the fields as farmers, they're gathering sheaves and tying them together, they're with the dirty sheep in the fields, a big ornate robe with long sleeves says something, doesn't it? It says, I'm not so much up for getting my hands dirty. I shan't be rolling up my sleeves a whole lot which just intensifies the brother's hatred and solidifies the favouritism shown towards Joseph. And maybe in his naivety, uh, uh, Joseph comes to his brothers and simply grabs a big can of petrol and pours it on the fire of their jealousy. He shares with them his prophetic dream about his brothers bowing down to him. (laughs) You think your brothers already hate you. They're already jealous of the affection your father gives you and you come to them to say, I had this dream that you guys were bowing down to me just like I was the king who rules over you. I wonder, as Joseph comes to his brothers to share his dreams, 
because the text says they can't say a kind word about him, does that mean that they don't say anything? Probably not, knowing brothers. It means they probably have some choice words about him, not some kind words about him. So whether it's after their ridicule or in the awkwardness, and Joseph says, guys, you wouldn't believe the dreams I've been having. All y'all are going to bow down before me. And so crazy are these dreams that even Israel, who loves Joseph so much more than everyone else, says to Joseph, that's a bit much. Because Joseph doesn't just say, my brothers will bow down. He comes and says, I had a dream that the sun and the moon, as well as the stars, the stars being the brothers, the sun and moon being Israel and his wives, bow down to Joseph. And Jacob, the one showing favouritism, says, that's a bit much. And so in the rage of their jealousy, the brothers say this. Have a look at verse 8. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what, would he, what we, he had said. And then he had another dream. He told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? They were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind in a gutless kind of way. What we have in front of us is like some first-class foreshadowing. Picture it like it's a Christopher Nolan film and there's like a prop that's presented to camera or like a one-liner delivered straight down the camera like, you're going to need this later on, hold on to it. Here is a picture of what's going to happen at the end of the story when Joseph's brothers will come before him and they will bow down to him and he will take the role of a rescuer, a saviour, the one who saves his family from starvation and certain death. But at the moment, in the middle of the story, what Joseph is saying to his brothers, because it's in a dream, he's basically saying, you know how you think I'm the favourite, so does God. So does God. And so the jealousy turns to murderous intent that actually gets reduced to harmful intent because Judah wants a bit of cash for Joseph as well. Joseph's dreams in this moment serve to promote God's saving plan. And isn't it interesting that how do Joseph's dreams serve to promote God's saving plan? God's plan is promoted by J Joseph pouring petrol on the fire of his brother's jealousy. 
Think about that for a second. In order for God's sovereign plan of salvation and rescue through Joseph to be promoted and for that future moment of rescue and life-giving salvation to happen, the jealousy of Joseph's brothers need to be inflamed to the point they're willing to kill him or bare minimum sell him into slavery. That can feel a little bit weighty to hold in your head and your heart, can't it? That in order for God's plans and purposes to be furthered in the world, it's not just despite together of good and evil and God's sovereign purpose and our responsibility. That happens all the way through the Bible. And here we get this reminder in the life of Joseph just like we get at the foot of Jesus' death on the cross, when scoffing irony as the crowd cries for Jesus to be crucified, where they're willing to put to death the Prince of Life, and it's only through His death on the cross that His life-giving grace and forgiveness can be extended to the world. So for Joseph, in order for God's plan of rescue and life-saving grace to be extended, his brother's jealousy needs to be inflamed to the point of murderous intent where they would sell their brother into slavery after beating him to a pulp and handing him over to Ishlamite caravan. Just to pause and say, Suffering is never a sign that you've been cut off from God's goodness. That rejection, even at the hands of people that we trust to us and his life-saving mission and his forgiving love are directed towards the world, especially through suffering and hardship, especially through rejection and weakness that we need to walk through as broken creatures in this world. Well, we finish then with the harmful intent of his brothers and Joseph's wandering. He doesn't really know the way because he's not really involved in the grazing and the flocks. He's five days walk away from home And here he bumps into some rando stranger in the middle of a field who shows him the way and points him in the direction of where he needs to go. And it's just another little great moment in the midst of Genesis where we see that this story knows nothing of chance and this story knows nothing of serendipity that all the time, even in this intermingling of strangers wandering in some random field, the providential hand of God is moving his good purposes toward his appointed ends. Well, Joseph is sold for the price of a slave in order that his brothers might benefit from his supposed death, slave. It's unfair. Despite being naive, he hasn't done anything to deserve this. It's unjust. He will, be, he will bear the scars of pain, physical and emotional. 
He will carry the brokenness of betrayal and the family catastrophe. And all the while, we keep being reminded that God uses the weak things of this world. He uses lowly people and despised people to bring about his plans and purposes. Somewhat, sometime back, I was talking to someone who was in the middle of a crisis and he was in a situation that felt very common, I think, where circumstances outside of their control, as well as the consequences of their own sin and decision-making, came together in this particular crisis moment. And in the midst of weakness and in the midst of hardship, we look together at this verse from 1 John that says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We're reminded in the unfair, unjust, broken and willfully sinful intermingling of these events of what I said to this person some months ago in the midst of their intermingled mess that the good news is that it's in the, in the middle of that kind of intermingled mess that God's grace lives. It's in the middle of that intermingled mess of circumstance and willful sin that God's grace loves to come and do God's best work. In and let God's grace bring healing and restoration, forgiveness and life. For Joseph, that's going to happen time and time again, the intermingling of circumstances and sin. And God's grace showing up to do God's best work to bring wholeness and restoration, forgiveness and life. As Joseph's brothers go back to their father, the web of lies and deception just grows bigger. As they share with their father the falsified story of Joseph's murder, Joseph's death, we hear echoes from 10 chapters earlier when Jacob himself deceived his own father. Once again, the blood and to roost. But we finish by just simply being reminded that in this story we deal with a God who looks at chaos and approaches darkness in order to speak order and to shine light. And for this reason, this earthly family without human hope need not despair, need not give, uh, need not lose heart and need not give up real hope. And I want to finish by reminding you and me tonight that in the midst of chaos and darkness, 
circumstance and sin, in the midst of weakness, the despised and lowly things of this life, that even when we cannot see the way, God's love is bright. And we need not lose heart and we need not give up hope because it's in the chaos and the darkness that God's grace lives. And that's where God loves to come and do his best and biggest work. As the band comes up, let me read to us from Romans chapter 8. Because we know that in all things, being called according to his purpose, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution? Shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That produces love in the heart that sees no way forward. That shatters human hopelessness. That humbles human pride and intensifies human worship. That puts ballast in the battered boat of human faith and steel in the spine of human courage and gladness in the groans of our afflictions. Because we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Let's stand and sing together.